the text I would like to call your attention to this morning is Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. And you can go ahead and open there, but we're going to pause our reading for a moment. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Ruth, you can find it between Judges and 1 Samuel. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with those, it's okay to use your index as well. So Ruth's a little book and it gets uh, caught somewhere in the Old Testament and hard to find sometimes. As you're turning there, when I read this week's passage, I was reminded of a story which I think I've told before, but some of you may be new and have not heard it, and if you have heard it before, it's always good to, to hear it again. It's one of my favorite stories of the reformer Martin Luther. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Martin Luther, he was a reformer from the 1500s that God used to recover the gospel when it had been veiled uh, in the medieval church. And he is the one that nailed the 95 Theses to the church door there in Wittenberg, Germany, that ended up sparking the Protestant Reformation. But at this time that I want to think about today in his life, he's, he's married, uh, he has uh, kids, the Reformation is uh, seemingly stable, even though the uh, Roman church is you know, still against the Reformers. But the Pope seems to be after Luther again, and Luther is just in an all-round bad mood. He's grumpy, and he's gone on for a few days, and like many wives, his wife Katie has had enough of it. And so Luther comes home one day, and he finds all of his children, all the people in the house, and his wife dressed all in black awaiting him. And Luther, the pastor who's worn out and tired, says, oh no, who has died? And his wife smartly replies to him, why doctor, have you not heard? God has died. Luther looked at her like she was crazy, and she said, well, because my husband, the pastor, Martin Luther, would surely not be in such a state as he has been in the last few days if he had a living God to hope in. Luther got the point. And Luther changed his attitude. But I think when I think of that story and I read our text today that we are all, myself included, all too often like Luther. And this morning I ask you, where have you placed your hope? Have you placed your hope in a politician? How about your 401k? Have you placed your hope in the integrity of a system or a group of people in a certain pastor? As I talk to people, I see this theme of, of hopelessness. The world seems cruel. Our political scene is full of clowns and actors. Economies out of balance. People regret life choices. They wish things had turned out differently. Hopelessness. But maybe your hopelessness has nothing to do with your state or the state of the world or decisions, but where you have placed it. This morning, I want to argue from the scriptures, Christian, you must place your hope in an all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging creator, God. Now, before you check out of this sermon and say, okay, I've heard this before. I know the answer to this one. I want to ask you this. Do you ever worry? I think all of us should raise our hands. I will raise mine. And because we worry, we must think again of this subject, and we must look to the Scriptures to see and to be reminded who it is that we must trust in. We must actively seek to apply the message of Scripture that we must hope in God to our lives. We will still struggle. We will still worry, but we will repent of that worry, and we will be the better off because we will remind ourselves that we must place our hope and trust in God. 
And in today's passage, we find three encouraging attributes of God in which we should place our hope during troubled times. Three encouraging attributes of God in which we should place our hope during troubled times. The God that we should place our hope in. First, hope in the Creator's providence. Second, hope in the Creator's provision. Third, hope in the Creator's protection. Now, as we read through the passage and as we draw out certain elements of the passage, you're going to see that all three of these overlap. So there's going to be times when we're talking about God's providence and we're going to be talking about his provision. There's going to be times when we're talking about his provision and protection is going to come up. And I think that's okay because all three of these are wound together in the passage and we need to hope in all three. As we continue to read through and study through the book of Ruth, we see that Ruth is a story that shows God's graciousness, that he forgives those who turn to him. His hesed, or his covenant loyalty, his kindness, his compassion are forever. And so far we've seen in the text at the beginning that a man named Elimelech, a man that lived in Bethlehem, an Israelite, a man under the covenant of God, took his family during a time of famine, famine to a pagan land, to Moab. I don't know if you caught it or not this morning, but as we read through the Psalms, today was Psalm 83, and Guy actually read the name of Moab, and that was one of the enemies of God in that Psalm. So when Elimelech takes his family from the promised land to the land that God has promised to give them in the Old Testament covenant, he takes them from Bethlehem and goes to Moab, which is a pagan land, a land that has been an enemy of Israel, a land that hired a, a sorcerer to curse Israel, that their women had tried to draw the Israelite men away from God, that was not a neutral decision. It was not as though he just said, well, I'm going to move to the next state over because they have more food in their grocery store. But he was actually turning his back on the covenant of God and going to a pagan land. And because of that, he died. And his two sons could have taken their mother and said, all right, we're going back to Bethlehem. But instead, they doubled down on their father's rebellion. They took pagan wives, and they died. And then finally, Naomi, the mother in this story, says a broken woman with no men in her life to take care of her. Remember, in the first, this isn't the first century, but in that century, in the ancient times, she was basically destitute. Says, I'm going back. I'm going back to the promised land. I'm going back to the people of my God. And she tells her two daughters-in-laws that are with her to go back to your people. Maybe you'll be able to find a husband because there's no future with me. And one of them does, but Ruth does not. Ruth clings to her mother-in-law and says, where you go, I go. Your God is going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. And then she swears an oath by the one true and living God, by Yahweh, by the God of Israel, and they travel back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, where God has since come and blessed his people. And that's where we pick up our story. Ruth and Naomi walked in bold faith despite their dire circumstances and returned to the people of God. And now we'll find Ruth going out in the fields to glean. So would you look with me at Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, 
whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, She is a young woman, young Moabite woman, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that, I should ta- that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and the full reward be given to you, given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come up here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. It was about a epaph of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought it out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had, with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I have worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. 
And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young man, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truths on our heart today. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that as we look to it here in the next few minutes, that you would open our eyes and uh, illuminate it to us. I pray that any unprofitable words that might come from my mouth would fall away from these people's ears, and that your truth would be what remains in their heart today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing we see in this text is that we are to hope in the Creator's providence. So Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. She's going out to get some food for Naomi and herself uh, so they can eat. And gleaning in the Old Testament, we see this practice. Uh, God laid out some guidelines to provide for the less fortunate. So the corners of the field were to be left for widows and orphans and poor people and lame people that couldn't work. Also, as the workers go through the field, anything they drop along the way, they are to leave for the widows and the orphans and the less fortunate so that they may eat. This is almost like the, the I don't want to say welfare, but like the food stamp program or something uh, in the ancient world. And Ruth looked to the Lord in this process to guide her steps. Look at verses 2 and 3. She says, it says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she went out and gleaned in the fields after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She just happens to come to the part of the field that belongs to one of her kinsmen, redeemers. If you remember last week, I, I, I told about the commentator who said you can almost see Samuel or whoever you believe wrote Ruth, I believe it's Samuel, writing with a little bit of a smile on his face saying she just happened to end up in this field of the man whom she would marry and from whom David would come and eventually Jesus Christ. She just happened to end up in the field of one of Elimelech's relatives. It was God's providence directing Ruth to Boaz, the one who God would use to restore the line of Elimelech and bring the future king of Israel and ultimately the greater David, King Jesus. Boaz was related to Naomi, his late husband Elimelech, and Samuel tells us that Boaz was a worthy man. He was a good man, and he was a kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. Now, a kinsman redeemer is uh, an interesting uh, theme in the Old Testament. The redeemer had a lot of potential responsibilities. The kinsman redeemer would buy back any relatives that had fallen into slavery. So in the ancient world, it's a little different than the slavery that we're used to in our country or that happened in this country, um, in that if you couldn't pay your debts, you couldn't file for bankruptcy, you were sold into slavery. And so if one of your relatives was sold into slavery, well, it was on you to go and buy them back out of slavery. You might track down someone who had killed a relative and avenge their death, some sort of Appalachian hillbilly, I can say that because I'm from that area, um, you know, vengeance thing. 
but also you could marry a widow and raise up sons for the fallen man. And that's what we're thinking about here. It was to ensure that the inheritance of the land in Israel would continue to be associated with the one who had died. And by stating that Boaz was one of her redeemers, Naomi is hinting that Boaz could be a potential husband for Ruth. God is providentially directing Ruth according to his plan. And God would provide for Ruth. So the second thing we see is to hope in the Creator's provision. The Lord had provided for Ruth and Naomi by way of Boaz. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she, being Ruth, fell on her face, bowing to the ground, saying, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me, that I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has fully been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother, your native land, and come to a people you did not know. So Boaz has heard what Ruth has done for Naomi one of his relatives. He had probably heard from the town gossip. You remember last week that everybody was abuzz saying, have you heard Naomi is home? And he had heard from the gossip that Naomi had returned with this Moabite woman who had refused to leave her. Now, before you say, aha, pastor right there, gossip, you're always harping on gossip. That's a good, that's a good place. I think there is far too much uh, scripture against gossip to start to make some kind of timeless theological principle out of this. But nonetheless, uh, Boaz had heard that all that Ruth had done. And he'd heard that Ruth was caring for Naomi rather than doing what was best for herself. She could have went back to her family. She could have went back to the comfort of her family, maybe found a nice Moabite young man to marry, but instead she was loyal to Naomi. And she went to a land that she did not know, and, and she converted to the God of Israel. Boaz states that he knows every, that Ruth has left everything familiar to care for Naomi and join the people of Israel. Israel, the covenant community, are now her people. Remember, she's sworn this oath, and the commentators say no one but in our time would ever question the fact that she is a legitimate convert to Israel during this time. And Boaz repays Ruth's kindness in turn. One commentator even writes that Boaz's words recall the ancient migration of Abraham and Sarah. Remember, they had left uh, Ur and had gone to this land they did not see because God had told them to go. And he states that Samuel may be implying a uh, a continual theme between the patriarchs and them. Either way, Boaz states that God will give Ruth her full reward. She has come under the protective care of Israel's God, the true God, and she is now a part of the covenant community. Notice the contrast. We have Ruth, this pagan woman, this Moabite woman who has come under the covenant community, the same community that Elimelech had turned his back on. Ruth had committed herself to the people of God, and she was now under God's protective care. Ruth trusted in God's providence, yet she worked hard. Look at verse 7. 
the, uh, the, the foreman of Boaz is speaking. He says, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So the foreman tells Boaz about Ruth's work ethic. She's not out here panhandling. She's not out here begging, but, I mean, she's been working from early morning. She's only taken a short rest, and she continues to work. We see this again in verse 17 when it says, So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned. So Ruth is not looking for handouts. She is trusting God to provide, but at the same time, she's working hard. Matthew Henry says that in this text, we see both Ruth's humility and industry. And we see God's providence directing her through the whole thing. Many are content to sit around waiting when struggles come, but Ruth knew she had to eat. And she knew that work was ordained by God. And so she faithfully and diligently went to work. In Ruth here, we see a balanced view of what we talked about last week in equipping hour. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. We want to hold those in a biblical balance. Robert Hubbard says, This chapter reminds believers that God graciously honor those who practice simple devotion by providing for their needs. So the question is, where do we need simple devotion in our lives? We'll talk more about this in a moment, but we talked about it in evangelism last week. We see it here as well. Is God sovereign? Is God ordained everything? Does God draw people to himself? Yes. Does God tell us that we are to go and to share the gospel and to proclaim the gospel? Yes. Does he ever say you have to work out how all that goes together? No. We just need to be faithful. Simple devotion. Like Ruth. God provided for Ruth and Naomi through Boaz because God cares and protects his sheep. The third thing we see in this passage is hope in the creator's protection. Ruth turned to God and had come under God's protective wings. Look at verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and the full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz responds to Ruth with hesed, with kindness, with steadfast love. And Ruth has been loyal to Naomi, and Ruth has joined the Old Testament covenant community of believers, and she believes in the living God. And this love flows out of this covenant relationship among God's people. John Yu writes, Love, grace, mercy, and kindness flow out of a covenant relationship. And that night, in this protection, in this provision of God, Ruth goes back to Naomi with not just enough grain for dinner, but it was about 50 pounds of grain. Now, I, my wife has been baking our own bread, and um, she's ordering in this grain, and somehow she ended up with some like raw grain, and now we need like a mill or something to, to crush this stuff up. And so I was asking her, I said, how much, she got five pounds, how many loaves of bread would that make? And we don't know for sure because we're still new to this, but I think she said around five to seven loaves. And so 50 pounds of grain. She went out to just get enough so they could eat. And she comes home with 50 pounds of grain, plus stuff left over from lunch that had been roasted to give to Naomi for supper. 
she had sat and was satisfied and had some left over. And so she has this leftover food for supper and in 50 pounds of grain. And Naomi acknowledges that this is God's provision and his protection in verse 20. God had provided and sustained for the two through a near kinsman. God's provided through Boaz. Maybe you've experienced something similar when you became a Christian. When Sarah and I became Christians, there were many times that the Church of Jesus Christ was our family. We've slept in Christians' homes. We've sat at people's tables. We have spent holidays with people that were not blood kin. We have cried on shoulders and laughed at birthday parties and and Thanksgiving and Fourth of July and all sorts of things like that. When we become a part of the community of believers, the church family is often closer than our biological. Because we share a common redeemed heart. Because we are bound up together in union with Christ. We're going to learn a lot about that in Ephesians. We are one in Christ as the covenant community. And God uses these everyday relationships to bless and to care for his flock in ways that we won't understand this side of eternity. And this is the turning point in Ruth. As we started out, we have despair, and we have emptiness, and we have famine. And now we see, according to God's providence, the story is turning. It's shifting. There's fullness. There's eating until you're satisfied. There's coming home with 50 pounds of grain. We see hope that turned to fulfillment. And that is because, friends, we hope in an all-powerful, an all-knowing, an all-loving, unchanging God. And because of this, I want to lay before you four things to do when you find yourself in times of trouble. Four things to do when you find yourself in dire circumstances. First, in troubled times, understand that God has a perfect plan for this world and his people. God's sovereign direction of the universe has been a common theme for the past months. Think about, I mean, hopefully you're seeing it. What did we look at Advent? Was Jesus' coming to earth random? Was it a knee-jerk decision by our triune God? No, it was planned before the foundation of the world. We see this in Galatians at the appointed time. God sent forth his Son. This Easter season, we saw the same thing, the crucifixion, the resurrection. These were not random, unforeseen events but events that were planned before the foundation of the world. And again, here in Ruth, we see that God is directing all things toward his designated telos, toward the end. When we read the first chapter of Matthew, there's only four women in Jesus's genealogy, and one of them is Ruth. That's not random. It's not a mistake. It wasn't some Moabite woman just happened to find her way into Jesus's earthly genealogy. But it was planned by a good and a sovereign God. Friends, there is nothing left to chance. There is nothing random. But God is in control and he is bringing about all things to their end for our good and for his glory. God governs his world. He created this world. He preserves, he upholds this world. As one of my mentors used to say, it's as though God is playing a violin and if he ever lifts his bow from the strings, the music stops. If he ever stops sustaining this world, we end. He didn't just create and walk away. 
but he is active in sustaining his creation. The book of Revelation is not a good guess. The book of Revelation is not God got in some time machine and went forward, but the God that stands outside of time is directing all things. The Bible tells us that God is directing all things to their appointed end. J.I. Packer says this, The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, or fate, but that all that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, rejoice, knowing that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. Or as Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28, For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. You know, last night, during our family worship, we're reading through the book of Matthew with the kids, and we just take you know little sections at a time, and we talk about what we read. And in God's providence, last night we, we read about the birds, that God cares for the birds that there's not a single bird that falls without God's consent. That he cares for his birds. And if God cares for the birds, how much more does he care for you? And the kids got it spot on. They said, well, we're made in God's image. Exactly. God cares for his church. He cares for those whom he sent his son to die for. There's a poem by a a lady uh, named Elizabeth Cheney. And I read this to our small group the other day, but it's a convicting poem, but it's a good poem about two birds speaking to one another. Elizabeth Cheney writes, Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. How convicting is that poem? The God who cares for the sparrows cares for us, yet we live like he doesn't. Like he's not in control. Like I'm captain of my ship. Like I need to wrestle this helm away from the one true and living God. Because it's all up to me. But in reality, I just need to trust and know that he is in control. Second, in troubled times, Neither trust your own strength, nor sit moping around. What did Ruth do when her and her mother-in-law hit rock bottom? Well, Ruth was obedient. She did what she knew she was supposed to do, and she went to work. They needed to eat. Work is good. God has ordained work. Now, this is not poor Tom's almanac. This is not saying God helps those who help themselves. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is that God does call for simple obedience, simple devotion to what he has commanded us to do, trusting that he orders all things. Often those of us who believe what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God fall into some weird fatalism. Well, if God's ordained everything, I don't have to do nothing. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. We are called to faithfulness. Paul says that we are to admonish the idle, not go sit down with them. We are called to serve God. We are called to be faithful to God. We are called to use our giftings to serve Him. We are called to provide for our families. Paul says that if one does not provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. 
but we are called to strive, keeping in mind that all we do, all of our obedience, all our work is only possible because of the work God has done in us. And it's all for his glory, not our merit. We can never earn our salvation. Experientially, I've learned that in troubled times, and I'm nervous about talking about experience in our day. I think in days past, you could do it and nobody got nervous, but now everybody just wants to talk about their experience. But I think when your experience reflects what's in the Bible, then it's, it's, it's okay. And experientially, I have found in troubled times that if we just continue to be faithful, that soon the storm will subside. And even if it doesn't, even if we are tied to a stake and burned like some of our forefathers, our Christian forefathers, the, the, the storm will still subside and we will go into the presence of our Lord. But we are just called to be faithful. We are called to strive to serve God. But still you might ask, well, how do I determine God's will? Well, this week we hosted Justin Peters and I... He taught us much about false gospels, and that was all good. Um, I learned a lot, but one of my favorite things was the outline he gave us the second night on determining God's will. And so this is from him on Tuesday night. This is not from me. I'm ripping it off, but telling him, I mean, but giving him the credit. And he gives us four things. He says, first, when you're seeking to know God's will, read, study, and obey God's word. Second Timothy 2.15 and 3.16. Know the scriptures. Know God's instruction. Because he has spoken to us through his word, he has given us his perfect instruction, and we are to know it. So the first step in knowing God's will for your life is to know God's word. Second, pray for wisdom. James 1, 5 through 8 says that if any of you lack wisdom, pray and God will provide. So pray for wisdom. Third, seek godly counsel. Proverbs twelve fifteen Romans fifteen fourteen. Now I want to pause there and say there's an emphasis on godly counsel. This isn't just general surveys. When the proverb says there is wisdom and and, and much counsel, it is not saying just take a survey of you know the pagans and everybody around you, the people that are struggling, and then act off that. It is seek godly counsel. Have men and women in your life that are minds are held captive to God's word. And seek counsel from them. Fourth, trust in the Lord to direct your steps. The Bible is clear. God will direct your steps. So know the God's word, pray for wisdom, seek godly counsel, and then trust the Lord to direct your steps. Ruth both trusted God and she worked in what she knew was right. There was a balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility faithfulness, and trusting God. God is directing the universe, and he has given us his perfect instruction. We must always trust his design, even in times of trouble, especially in times of trouble. Third, in times of trouble, lean in to the covenant community. Now, the Bible is clear that we are not to put our hope in any man. Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes and a son of man who will return to the earth and his plans will go with him. So we're not to put our trust in man, but God has given us his people. As Americans, right? Like we are, we are lone rangers. We don't like to think of ourselves as being dependent on one another, but God did not give us all the gifts so we would depend on one another. We are being built up into one body. 
So in times of trouble, lean into this covenant community. God has given us a people to walk with. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is a covenant community. As a church, we bear one another's burdens. We hold each other accountable. We learn the faith. We submit to elders. We support one another in physical needs. We proclaim the gospel together as God's people. The church is a gift from God. Lean in to the covenant community to, in troubled times. Do not pull away. We are being built up together. Not individuals, but a church. In both the Western church and unfortunately in this local church, there is a lack of understanding as who we are, of who we are as the church, as the body of Christ. Our church covenant is not a box that we check to have voting rights. I've heard that said. It both makes me sick to my stomach and breaks my heart. If you only sign a covenant so that you can have voting rights, friends, you do not understand what the church of Jesus Christ is. It is a statement. It is a commitment that we make to one another. The Bible is full of covenants. Jesus Christ has made a covenant with us in his blood. If you're married, you have made a covenant with your spouse until death does you part in good times and in bad times. When it's hard and when it's easy, you are committed to one another. And every member of Whitecliffe Church stated that they are committed to the church unless moved by providence of God, a new job, a death, or needing to leave, that we are committed to walk with one another. I'm committed to this body. You are to be committed to this body. When we see people that just come and go and bounce around, we see that it's also an indicator of what our marriage covenants are like in America. When most people say, I'm committed to this church in good times and in bad, what they really say is, I am committed to this church until I'm not happy. I'm committed to this local church until I don't get my way. John Owen reminds us, the Puritan, that when speaking about church covenants, he says, those who wish to neglect their duties will always have many reasons to do so ready at hand. So to the faithful, to those who, just like their marriage vows, the words of a church covenant are not just some box that you check. I say to you, press on, press into the covenant community in times of trouble. Because as brothers and sisters in Christ, we commit to, quote, watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to help one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian compassion and courtesy, believing that the pursuit of peace with others and personal holiness accompany true faith in Christ. We will be slow to take offense, always eager to seek the reconciliation Christ commands, and will work to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ultimately, Ruth teaches us much about God's hesed, his steadfast loyalty to his people. But the examples in Ruth also teach us much about the covenant loyalty within the body, within God's people, the loyalty that his people show each other. In times of trouble, 
Press into the covenant community. Do not pull away. Fourth, and most importantly, in troubled times, hope in Christ and his steadfast love for you. I've said this over and over in this series that Christ will never leave his bride. He promised us that. He commissioned us to go to make disciples, to preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And then he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. When you go through trials, when the waves seem too high, when the trouble seems too much, remember, recall this truth that he will never leave you if you're a truly Christian. Remember, this promise, these promises are to true Christians. Remember what God has said in his word. He has promised to forgive all who turn to him in true repentance. He has promised to be with all who turn to him in true repentance. And he has promised to return for all who turn to him in true repentance. Because every single one of us are born with an issue. Every single one of us are born dead in sin. None are holy. None of us can stand up here and say, look at me, I've got it figured out, because every single one of us was born completely dead in sin. What does a dead person do? Nothing. But God makes alive. And God sent his one and only son, who was with him from eternity past. He has always existed. There is never a time when which Jesus Christ did not exist or was created. <clears throat> but he came to earth, came as a man, was born of a virgin, had an earthly mother, and he walked a perfect life, the life that we cannot walk. We were born dead in sin. He was born holy, humanly speaking. He walked this perfect life, and then he took upon himself your and my punishment for our sin. This sin nature that we inherited, this rebellion against a holy God, he took it upon himself, was nailed to a cross and drank all the cup of wrath that Alan McElroy deserves. He died, was laid in a tomb, and after three days walked out of that tomb alive. In human flesh, because this wasn't some spiritual, spiritual resurrection, but in human flesh, he ate he laughed, he hugged, he, he did whatever with his disciples for so many days, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And from there, he will come back for his bride. For those who have turned to him in true faith, friend, if you have not turned to him, there is nothing more important for you to do today than that. To repent what the Bible says, to turn from your sin, to turn from yourself, to turn from selfishness, and rebelling, and turn to Christ. Believe this gospel. Believe Christ is who he says he is. Repent and believe the gospel. That is the only way these promises apply to you. Christian, put your hope in an all-powerful, all-knowing, loving, unchanging creator God. He's created this world. He sustains this world. And in this passage, we find three encouraging attributes of God. The God in which we should place our hope during times of trouble. The Creator's providence, the Creator's provision, and hope in the Creator's protection. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says this. 
He says that the people of God should look to God because God will supply for their every need according to his riches and glory in Christ. The book of Ruth is a testimony to Paul's statement that out of his covenant faithfulness, the Father cares for his people. And the ultimate expression of that caring is that he sent his one and only son to die for our sin. Jesus bought us. He intercedes for us. He places the path before us. He walks with us in it, and one day he is coming back for us. Christian, you must trust in this God in times of trouble. Father, we praise your name for the love and the mercy that you have shown us. Father, may we be a people who are known for putting our hope in you. Father, for those who hear my voice now and do not believe the gospel, God, I pray you would be gracious to them, that you'd be merciful to them, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would glorify yourself through it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.